Hello, welcome to episode 26 of the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey, and this week we will hear why, as a CEO, you have to bring your best self to the business every day. Welcome to the Business of Software Podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. With a background in chemistry and pharmacology, and being an MIT MBA with a focus on finance and economics, Isa Watson's corporate career started as a chemist and data scientist before moving to JP Morgan Chase. Whilst VP Digital Product and Strategy for Small Business at JP Morgan, Isa observed that the bank branches that were most profitable were the ones with the most engaged workforce. She took the leap into the world of entrepreneurship when she founded Squad in 2015 having seen an opportunity to help companies understand how to do this better. But it was a huge career pivot that saw her leave corporate life to go it alone. She will talk about some of the ways that companies can provide a better environment for humans to work and share how she came to realise that in her startup, no one else in the business has more impact on the morale and well-being of the team than the CEO. Happy listening. So the first thing I want to get clear is that this is not an HR talk. I'm not an HR specialist, I didn't study HR, I'm not trained in HR. I'm a chemist and I'm a technologist. And when I was talking to Mark before coming to speak at the conference, the one thing that he was really interested in was kind of this juxtaposition between my personal experience and kind of the software that we're building. So I run a software-based, um, software company based in New York City, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it later, but I want to start by taking you guys through the beginnings of my journey. There we go. So, can anyone guess? This is a picture of the West Indies. So you see South America's down there, Florida's up here. Can anyone guess what dot that island is? Hmm? You said St. Bart's? Martinique, okay, any other guesses? St. Kitts, any other guesses? Okay, St. Lucia. So, huh? It's a picture of St. Kitts, so that's where my family's from. That's where this all started. Um, and it's where my dad immigrated from in his early 20s to come to the U.S. to go to college. So when you think about like the American dream, you think about someone like my dad. Immigrated from a developing island. Um, the population today is still about 50,000 people, so I think there are more people enrolled in the University of California, Berkeley. Um, and you know, he came to the U.S., studied computer engineering, had this career through all the kind of older school tech companies, IBM, MCI, AT&T, things like that. And when you think about, you know, not just my dad being an immigrant, but also, you know, being born in the 50s, um, you know, what was, what was some of the messages that were told to people that were born in the 50s and 60s? Because it's very different than what's told to us today as millennials. He was told that, you know, you go to college, you build a stable family, and those are kind of your, your biggest values, like family, work, family, and providing for your, for your kids. And so that's what he did. I have five siblings. Um, <laughs> they were really, my family was really busy. Um, all the way for three technologists, lots of, there are a few engineers, some real estate developers, we're all up and down the East Coast doing different things. But between that and all of us playing sports and all of us playing instruments, like that was pretty much the only thing my parents had time to do. 
And so we, I wanted to address really quickly before delving in this generational shift in priorities. So again, when I talk about the boomers, um, again, stability, financial um, freedom, and providing for your family are kind of some of the bigger things that they care about. But when you shift gears and think about who the boomers' kids are, those are millennials. And what they told us were that, you know, we should find our passion. We should, we, you know, we should build community. Um, but, you know, people also think we're selfish and we're lazy. You know, not necessarily true, but um, those are some of the words that you think about when you think about the millennial population. So 1987, that's the year I was born. I think it was a particularly good year. Um, I, I say that because a lot of people, they get so confused by my age because I have three degrees, I've had three careers, or like, but you look 12, and I'm like, not quite. <laughs> but 1987, it, like gas was 89 cents a gallon. Eggs were 65 cents a gallon. I mean, a cart, a dozen. Eggs are like $4 now at Whole Foods. Full House and The Simpsons came out. But... Um, you know, it was the year that I started to kind of form this, you know, receive all the uh, values that my parents instilled in me. And so the things that I were really taught kind of revolved around a few things. So one, you could be anything you want. Um, two, you can find your passion and the money will follow later, which is why a lot of millennials are overeducated and underemployed. Um, and three, you can do anything you want. And I remember I would always ask my parents, I'm like, you know, um, are you sure I can do anything I want? Like, what if I wanted to be president? And they were like, you can do that. And now I actually think that I could, like, <laughs> given that anyone can be president. Um, <laughs> And they were like, I was like, well, what if I want to go to and build a house on Mars? They're like, you can make that happen. And so, you know, I grew up with this sense of optimism that I could really do anything. And it wasn't arrogance. It was just, well, my parents said if I really work hard, I can just really do it. And so the one thing that they instilled in me at the foundation level, though, was that, you know, Isa, whatever you do, do as much as you can to positively impact as many people while you're here on this world on this earth because your time is limited. I never really understood what it meant when I was like 12 when they started telling this to me. I was like, oh my God, shut up. Like, I'm trying to watch TV. But, um, you know, it's something that stuck with me. It's one of those things where parents say these things over and over and they're very esoteric at the time. Um, but over time, it starts to make sense. And so, you know, what did I do? I, I really focused um, in kind of doing this on accelerating my experiences because I just wanted to get as much um, experience as I can to, you know, figure out how I was going to impact the world. So I studied, um, got my undergrad in chemistry at Hampton University and did my master's in pharmacology at Cornell. Um, and I, my first job, I was a diabetes chemist at Pfizer and I was also a data scientist for the drug Lyrica, which I'm sure you guys have seen commercials on because Pfizer is a great marketing company. Um, and then I, I changed courses a little bit. I wanted to be a little bit close to the impact uh, and just dealing with people. So I, I went to business school here at MIT because I thought that, woohoo, yay. Um, I, I thought that I was going to go back to pharma and, and, you know, build and sell like big pharma companies and kind of got wooed into the world of Wall Street. I don't know how that happened. Um, life just happens. And I went to J.P. Morgan Chase. So I, I had to go buy suits. Um, I bought hills. And I like figured it out on Wall Street. And the interesting thing about my role at J.P. Morgan Chase was that I was brought into this program that Jamie Dimon had created to facilitate 
a pipeline of mini Jamie Diamonds. Um, and so he, his view is that people should be more generalist. People on Wall Street are too specific um, and too niche. And you know, we should kind of cultivate a group of leaders that are doing a lot more than that. And so um, one of the things that you know, was interesting was that my, I started at JP Morgan, and on the fifth day, I had like a very you know, traumatic life experience that I might have a difficult time talking about right now. It's funny, Mark, when I, could pre when I like was talking through this presentation, I could talk about all the slides except this one, so we'll see how I do. But this is a picture of a bus accident. So my parents, they sponsor bus trips for kids to visit colleges every single year. Um, and these were generally kids who could not afford um, college visits on their own. And so my parents were kind of situated at the front of the bus and the bus flipped over on a straight road and ejected both my parents and my dad did not survive. And so um, they had to lift the bus literally off of his body. And so this is my fifth day at JP Morgan Chase. Like I'm this like hotshot MBA. I'm supposed to be doing these like great things. And I, this is how I felt. It, I just, I felt confused, I felt empty, I felt angry. My dad was like a 58-year-old, healthy, productive citizen, like went to church, paid his taxes, um, and was happily married to my mom. And so it was just a lot for me to digest, and I really couldn't digest human interaction. So I just kind of went into this like dark place where, you know, I was just going to work and coming home. I think for like probably three months, my dinner consisted of, um, two glasses of wine and blueberries. And that was pretty much like all I ate. So the one thing that I, that I kept remembering and that kept playing over and over and over in my head though, as I tried to pull myself out of this rut. And also keep in mind, my mom barely survived and she had almost no memory of everything. And so um, out of the six kids, I'm probably the one that my parents kind of gravitated the most to for all these things. And so I had to kind of put my own grief aside to make sure that my mom was okay. And basic things like, Okay, where's your cable bill? Where's your bank account? Those things were handled while still being one of the top 10% of performers in my job at JP Morgan. So I go back to my roots. I'm like, all right, what am I doing with my life? Because what I'm not gonna do is I'm not gonna sit and be unfulfilled and like just be miserable all day and work for somebody else. And so this, Whatever you do, do as much as you can to positively impact as many people as you can. It just like kept playing over and over and over in my head. And I, what did I decide to do with that? At the time, I decided to double down in what I was doing. So again, limited human interactions. I like abandoned my friends for a few years. Um, and I was just like, I just want to accelerate all my experiences. I raised my hand for every new big job. They moved me out to Hong Kong to build like this. And they moved me back over to New York to build that. And next thing you know, I had a $90 million budget at like 27, where I created a billion dollars revenue for the firm. So that was like how I coped with what I was doing. And so again, it was like really accelerating the experiences and different types of experiences because I was like, I need to figure out what I'm gonna do to positively impact as many people as possible. And so the eureka moment that I had that led me to start to leave JP Morgan, um, which everyone was just really shocked about. They were like, how can you, like Jamie knows you, like you, like, you, do, you can't leave. <laughs> Well, I did. Um, 
I became the youngest, actually, head of digital product for all of small business banking. So that's the division that banks to 5 million American small businesses um, with all their digital services. And so uh, what I did is I led a revamp of all the digital products that they used. And that was really cool. And my view is that when you're building product, you can't build a product from an ivory tower like hanging out with like Jamie Dimon. Like, that's cool, but you're not gonna get to understand what your users are doing and what your biggest pain points, the biggest opportunities are. And I always love to say that I'm like, I'm for the people. I never like to be in like, you know, the top floors all the time. And so what I did, is I made friends with branch managers across the country when I would travel. I didn't ask for permission, I just did it. And the one thing that I found that was super interesting was that the branches that had the strongest workplace engagement. And what I mean when I say that is that these branch employees were self-organizing to like go run two miles together by the Hudson, to go hear cool industry speakers, to go smoke cigars together. Those ended up being our strongest performing branches in the country. And not from a, like, oh, they have the best employee satisfaction scores. No, they had the fastest growing assets. If you look at all the branch metrics from a scorecard perspective, they were the strongest performing branches. And so it was like, you know, for a while I thought it was this creepy millennial of like, well, if I'm like happier at work and I feel more connected at work, then like I'll perform better. And people always said this has no ROI, all the things that people say, you know, when you come up with ideas. And the reality was that I actually saw definitively on paper from branches that were like highest asset branches to lowest asset branches, from branches that were all the way in New York to Ohio to Texas to California. That was, it was pretty consistent. And so it, it was this kind of moment I said, you know, well, everyone loves money. You know, once I was able to communicate that this made money, um, you know, I felt more comfortable, you know, taking the plunge and, and feeling a lot more validated, a lot more conviction. And so the inflection point, do I stay or do I go? So I can't remember how old I was. I think it was 28, 29. And I, I was like, you know, I'm not getting any younger. Once I like, get married and if I have a child, have a child. This isn't gonna be as much of a reality as I want it to be. So I was like, let me just leave. And you know, being a child of immigrants, like when you tell your parents who came to the US so you can go to school, <laughs> you tell them you're leaving your 401k and your health insurance to go do something that doesn't make sense to them, you know, my, the reaction was, are you okay? Are you sure? Do you need to talk about it? You know your dad just died, so like, you know, maybe you really need to talk about it with somebody. And no, it was just, you know, I was like, I actually think that my dad would have been supportive because again, finding your passion. Um, and so, we, is the idea good enough? You know, we, we talked about how to kind of materialize this, right? And I think that when it comes to figuring out if you want to start a business, you have the idea, you have the founder, and you have the team. And on the idea side, again, you know, facilitating kind of engagement among people in a way that's natural. And you know, it's really funny because I imagine people in this room um, are a little bit diverse in, in ages, but you're able to have conversations with people. Whereas I have a younger brother who's 24, who's like the most charming guy, everyone loves him, but he can't, he can't make friends, you know, the way that you know, we make friends because they, they grew up on Twitter. Like Twitter was a thing when they were like nine. Um, and so how do you actually like reverse that a little bit and bring online 
you know, communities offline at scale. And so that was a huge opportunity. And so, you know, the founder, TBD, I was like, you know, I figured out all the other shit that I've done in my career, so I can probably figure this out. Um, and then the team, I was able to recruit um, one of the earliest engineers on the Gmail team, who was there from 04 to 2016. So I said, all right, let's make this happen. So the idea was really around humanizing connection. And when you think about, you know, how to, kind of building on what Greg said, how to really empower the people around you um, and your workplaces, I think that a lot of times, especially because of the tension in generations, you know, people often think that, you know, work is completely separate. Where, you know, my dad probably wouldn't have gone and smoked cigars with his coworkers, but they were just doing that in very grassroots ways. And so the idea was to actually build technology that can empower that, like I said, at a big scale. And so, you know, being able to, to build that technology and not just build it, but being able to sell it. <laughs> um, you know, we actually started out in the work, and it's just strictly enterprise software. So we were like, you know, we're your kind of modern work, workplace engagement tool. You know, I, I, I will put this out there to the audience. How many, what, what would you guess the number of no's I got before I got our first enterprise contract? <laughs> You're funny. I should have come to you first. <laughs> 10, 20? 100? I got 320 no's. And I didn't even realize it until like two weeks ago um, when we, we, we were um, looking at our HubSpot data because we were um, moving off HubSpot and all the conversations. At some point, I was just like a crazy person in HubSpot all the time. And I got the first yes I got was of a mid market. Um, you know, a mid-market credit union. And the second yes I got shortly after that was from Walmart. <laughs> I was like, okay, <sighs> I can breathe. No, I'm just kidding, I can't breathe. But, um, you know, it, it, it took a lot and it took a lot of persistence. But again, this whole idea of kind of connection was really important. And the really interesting thing about it is that in our, in our industry category, um, you know, Enterprise software, that's optional. I mean, you're not getting paid from it. You're not selecting your 401k, stocks, and things like that. You know, you usually struggle to get even 10% engagement. But through our, you know, customers, Walmart, Acoma, et cetera, you know, we're consistently seeing over 50% of employees use the software every single month, which is significant. And so we just really needed that, that push to kind of validate it, and it's really, really just taken off. Um, and so back to the generations really quickly. So I talked about the boomers, I talked about millennials. Um, you know, the, the funny thing about it is that one of the biggest things we learned about the product is that our initial hypothesis was wrong. So we said, oh, we're gonna allow you to create this work community over here where you have your groups of people. So you have your, your new moms group, your book club, your you know, marketing analytics people. You have your people that are like your ReactJS, you know, connoisseurs. Um, and the reality is that people didn't want to just have their work community isolated. They wanted their work to be completely integrated with their life. And so when you think about kind of where is work prioritized relative to other things, with the boomers, it was actually prioritized very highly and it was completely separated, right? Because you can kind of separate the things that you prioritize. But with millennials, the reality is that they wanted not just, you know, 
their work community, but they wanted their work community a bit more integrated with their, with their kind of life. And so, you know, the second generation idea of Squad by Invested was really, um, you know, not just having a community of different groups and a repository of all activities. And again, you know, we've had the AI conversation earlier, you know, this, earlier today, but, you know, the platform is built on certain AI machine learning principles that actually learns you over time and learns the people that you're connected to over time and actually recommends certain things to you. And every event is scored relative to you. Um, but the reality is that, like I said, people didn't want work completely isolated. They wanted it integrated. And so what we did recently is we deployed the ability to have multiple communities. So you can be part of your Walmart.com community or your Vivo community or your greenhouse software community, all whom were, um, who are enterprise customers of ours. But you can also join your kind of FIDI tennis squad, your FIDI tennis community, or your New York City meditation community. And again, it's really interesting to see um, you know, the impact of engagement that's had and how much, you know, engagement has really taken off when you really focus on human connection that people weren't really able to achieve in other places. And so how do we think about making our workplace more human? I have, you know, some just kind of basic principles and I think a lot of these kind of build off what you were talking about, Greg. But the first thing, first and foremost, is respect. Um, you know, I think that the workforce is getting much more diverse. Um, and the way that I was raised was that, you know, my, we lived a little bit right outside the county lines when I was in middle and high school in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And so my parents would have to like take the trash to, was that, are you a Tar Heel? No, no, well, we live in, I live in Raleigh. Oh, okay, yay, 9 um, <laughs> my, my parents have to take the trash to the trash, uh, to the dump is what we called it. But my dad always struck a conversation with the guy who manned the dump, and he would bring him Burger King. And I was like, Dad, why are you always bringing him Burger King? And he was like, because he's human. You know, people are kind of probably shitty to him. And, like, you know, it's really important to make him feel like he's, you know, just worthy and, and respected. And, you know, my parents always said, you don't, don't talk to, don't ever think that you would talk to Jamie Dimon differently than you would talk to the janitors. You know, that's, that's not how we do here. And so I think that, you know, I've kind of implement, implemented this in our workspace, but it's so fundamental. You'd be surprised how much, like, disrespectful things kind of go on in, in different corners. And um, it really does shape kind of, you know, the workplace. I think that honesty and transparency are super important. When I went, when I, my, my first time, <laughs> my first job at J.P. Morgan, I was working for the CEO of the mortgage bank right after the crisis, so cleaning up all their shit. Um, and I remember I, I, I walked in, it was my first time in corporate America and I was so insecure. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm this like tall, like I'm unambiguously black. Like I'm not, it's, like my aunt is like, <laughs> my aunt is like Mark's color. <laughs> but like, and I'm just like, and I know my voice sounds assertive. I was like, so I'm going to go and I'm gonna put on my suits and I'm going to walk like a robot and talk like this. And yes, the analysis and Excel, blah, blah, blah. Um, the regression, blah, blah, blah. And people did not like me. They did not mess with me. Like, and I, it made me realize, I was talking to one of my mentors who's a vice chairman at Morgan Stanley. She was like, they don't like you from this review. Like, and she was like, it really seems like you're not being yourself. And I was like, well, how should I be? And she was like, yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, all right, cool. I'll be myself and I'll, I'll talk like how I talk. 
I will walk like how I walk. And I'll, you know, when, I, when Greg, when you talked about cultivating vulnerabilities, it's really interesting because I see my therapist every Tuesday and my team knows at 6.15, so my, my, my sessions are at 6.45 p.m., but my, my team knows at 6.15, they're like, all right, you're gonna go see Dr. Mel? All right, peace out, like, you know? And I, I'm open about it because I'm just like, <clears throat> people think that CEOs are this like untouchable thing, like that we're these like non-human transformers. And the reality is that we have struggles too. Like one thing I just really struggled with was, um, you know, Ravisi Capital backed, I was like the 20th black woman in the US to ever raise over a million dollars in VC funding or something like that, it was crazy. And most of our investors are in Silicon Valley and so there's, I mean, investors that were like the earliest in like Birchbox and Harry's and Heroku and companies like that. And so, you know, it went, there was one time where I just started feeling a lot of pressure. There's a lot of things I'm digesting as a founder. Right, and I like it's really helpful to have people around me. You know, I feel really moody today. You know, I just think that when you are open and transparent and human, there's something that it does to the people around you. Um, and so that's one of the things I think makes the workplace more human. And authenticity kind of plays plays into that. Um, empowerment. So I think it's really important to make sure that you empower the people around you. And what I mean when I say that is really kind of driving what makes them great, right, and what they care about. Um, you know, my team is incredibly diverse. We're like a third Asian, a third white, and a third black. And we're Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Catholic, Buddhist. I think I'm probably missing a few too. Um, but the reality is that we're so different, and the people who are like, we don't see color, that's not, like, that's not really realistic. Um, what, we do, <laughs> what we do is we actually have, um, we, we call them like community lunches, like once a, once a week. Like my aunt was up from St. Kitts, um, and she made this huge Caribbean feast, and like my engineers like took all the leftovers home like, and gave it to all their friends for like, they had food for like a week. Right, and it's, it's just different things about feeling empowered to be who you are and to bring yourself. I'm Caribbean, and yes, I like curry chicken. Like, it is great, it is good, you know? I'm, I'm not gonna pretend to like your salad with no dressing. Um, <laughs> and so I, I think that there are a lot of differences culturally, um, you know, country-wise, all that. And how do you empower the people to be who they are? And so, I know when I was empowered to be who, or I, I made myself empowered to be who I was when I was in corporate America, I just performed completely differently. And you know, it's much easier, and you get much better performers. You're constantly in top 10% when you um, are empowering people. The other thing is inclusion. So I talked about kind of you know, the difference of you know, the culture, culture aspects on the team, but I think one thing that people in tech get wrong, and particularly like, it particularly, like I see a lot of white Americans making this mistake is that they get to a certain place and they're like, oh great, now we need to focus on diversity. And we need to like put, get numbers and we need to make sure you interview a certain number of women and a certain number of black people so that we can fill it. But the reality is that that doesn't work. It's, it's a force mechanism. You just have to focus on being inclusive first because <laughs> I can't tell you, like every single black person I went to, um, a top 10 MBA program that was a year below me or above me, I know them. 
Like it's, the community is incredibly small and you know, people are attracted to places that feel inclusive. And so I think that this society, we kind of do diversity and inclusion a little backwards, but like focusing on being inclusive. And it's not just being inclusive of like race, by the way, it's being inclusive of people who want to be open about like mental health issues. I think that mental health um, is really, I struggle with this with my own family because the last thing you want to hear as a Caribbean is that your, your child's going to a therapist or your child's on medication. And it's like very not accepted in like a lot of immigrant populations. And so I actually talk about it to my family, to my grandma, and I'm like, grandma, you need mental health, like you need some help too. And you like all of it. Um, and so, you know, it's inclusive about whatever that person's experience is, however they show up, right? Um, you know, I had some of, some of the women that report to me last week were just really, really shitty on Friday and Thursday. And I was like, what's going on? And they were like, I don't, like, this Kavanaugh thing is, like, really getting to me. And I was like, okay. Like, you want to talk about it? You know, and I made a space for them. And I, like, it didn't get to me the way that it got to some of them, but I was inclusive of their, you know, differences of, you know, their, their opinions and how they were feeling. Other thing is experimentation. I talked about kind of accelerating experiences, and that was just my approach to finding what I wanted to do in order to kind of amplify my impact to the world. And I'm also a scientist by training, so I you know, was a chemist, and everything's an experiment. When you're building a high-growth company, it's also an experiment. It's like rapid experimentation. I think that it really has to be part of your culture. And another reason that I call out experimentation is because when you're really pushing the, the edge and you're experimenting, you're going to fail. And most people aren't really comfortable with failure. Um, you know, they talk about failing fast, but I fail all the time, you know, and I also win all the time. And I think that, you know, making an environment, especially this is particular, particular to high growth ones, um, where experimentation, um, you know, is part of the, the environment and failure is accepted is also important. And then last thing is empathy. This is something that my first leadership coach was like, you suck. Um, because I was like, I don't understand what's so hard about that. Like, I did it, I made it happen, they should make it happen too. And it's really not that simple. My experience is not their experience. Um, there's this really awesome video by Brene Brown. I'm sure you, you know her. It talks about empathy versus sympathy. And you know, you know what I'm talking about? And um, you know, empathy is, you know, oh my God, you know, I had a miscarriage. Oh, I'm, I really don't know what it's like to feel that way, but you know, I'm really glad you told me. And sympathy is, I had a miscarriage. Well, at least you could get pregnant. You know, that's like when you think about empathy versus, you know, sympathy and, and the need for people to have empathetic folks around them, um, that's also really important. And so those are the components, I think, that kind of humanize, you know, workplaces. But it's also, you know, very kind of embedded into the software that we build and that we've scaled through thousands and thousands of users and, you know, dozens of companies. And so... What's next for us on that side? Um, again, just you know, kind of wrapping it up. You know, I'm not an HR person at all, <laughs> but you know, connection really drives everything that we're really able to do. And so, the one thing that we're losing, kind of in this society, is a little bit more of that human connection with the amplification of you know a lot of social media. Which I'm actually I'm being a hypocrite because I'm on IG story all the time. But I'm also trying to course correct with the software that we're building and scaling. 
Um, so again, whatever you do, do it as much as you can to positively impact as many people as you can. Um, the stories that I hear from our users on like how they were able to, you know, build connections outside of their units and even find different friends. And it's really hard to make friends as an adult and to get the next big opportunity. That was, you know, those are actually super inspiring. Um, we're, we I haven't had a user meet their spouse yet, so I'm waiting on that. Um, and so we're just focusing on user growth, you know, straight line up. That's what Silicon Valley companies do. Um, and then making my best is a shit ton of money. So, um, <laughs> you know, just I wanted to end with, you know, the fact that, like I said, connection drives everything. Um, you know, and those are the things and components that I think make workplaces you know, more human, and that's what we drive through our software, and that's, it's also, like I said, just really shaped my, my own personal, personal life experience that, you know, I was happy to share with you guys today. <laughs> Oops. Incredible. Well, you followed it. <laughs> you followed it, and sorry to start with that. We're gonna have a couple of questions. I think we've got a little bit of, um, little bit of time before we go off. Anyone? Here, uh, Alison at the back. Thank you so much for yeah. inspiring and meaningful talk. You and, you and Greg Boasts, I didn't get to thank him at the end of his. Yeah. I'd like to look at this from the point of view of business design. Um, you create software that creates connection. That, that, is, that is a derivative of what you're doing. But when you talk about the business, you're talking about leading from the front in the main. Uh, you're talking about what you do to create an environment that other people will follow. What about after your last day? What, what are the considerations that you would put into place or that you would have others in this room put in place to be able to hold up the principles that you described in your, in, in, in your, in your carrot slide um, that can survive us? So that instead of just doing what we can during our short time on Earth, it can go beyond. So let me let me uh, clarify. You mean my last day at the company or on Earth? Oh no, I, I just meant at the company. <laughs> wait, wait, no. you said the company or Earth? We can aim. I'm for not going to shake your hand. I'll cut myself. You, <laughs> I said we, 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 we can we can plan around our last day oh, at, the at the company. company? And hopefully. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I was like, well, I hope my last day isn't soon, but well, either one actually. But um, I think it's really about training and how you socialize what you do. So the, the interesting thing about it is that employees are actually, everyone's quite malleable and adaptable to environments and humans are very resilient. And so when it comes to, um, you know, making sure that the, the values that you created and the culture that you created can survive you, it'll, it won't be the exact same. Like, you know, Apple wasn't the exact same when Tim Cook came in and took it over from Steve Jobs. But I do think that there's certain, like, um, very, like, hardcore written things you could put in place, and they're kind of the intangibles. So on the tangible side, there's, like, the mission and the values and all the kind of HRE things that you want to do and however you want to write them. I think that most of them are actually written pretty um, robotic and are very confusing. And so I think that like being super clear there is one thing. Um, and I also think on the intangible side, you know, it's really, the one thing I, I've noticed is that people who have worked for me, who have then gone to work for other people, I see me in them. 
It's just very strange, like how my, my, I see me and my mother and my father. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, one of those things of being consistent with how you're engaging with people and kind of knowing who you are and having a refresh. Like I said, I, between my therapist and my life coach, I actually have a refresh on who I am and it's, it evolves, you know, and being clear about that. Like I'm not the same person I was like two years ago. Um, and just how that kind of transcends your employees, I think those are kind of two kind of tangible and intangible things that you can do. Allison. Thank you that. so, so much um, for your talk. Oh, was someone else supposed to go first? No, no. no. Okay. I'm um, just trying oh, okay. to point out where you are. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm back here. Hi. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, something that was really remarkable to me was to hear the amount of times you were told no. Um, that is a lot of, of no's. And something that I'm curious about as someone who is... Um, you know, building my own consulting business, I get told no all the time. Um, and I'm curious, how did you, uh, obviously humans are very resilient, but how do you take the time to have an emotion, some type of emotional response? Because of course, like being told no sucks, um, while also gathering some type of learning experience to move forward. Um, or do you just like you know, brush it off and, and move forward. I'm, I'm curious to hear. Well, the first thing I did is I gained 30 pounds. So <laughs> to be completely real, it wasn't like a smooth selling thing. But, and I got a stomach ulcer, so my doctor was like, you need to sleep more. Um, so I think that, one, I'm a negatively motivated person, and people have told me you know, so much in my life, and I'm like, in my head, I'm like, that's okay, you don't need to believe me. Like, I'm about to go do this anyways. So I think there's like that, and I actually like, I'll, I'll get up in the morning, I'll talk to myself in the mirror, and I'm like, yo, you got this, you know? Or, you know, I have a circle of friends where I'm like, I'll, they know what I need when I'm like texting them these certain things, and they're like, yo, if you don't kill it today, I'm gonna come fight you. Um, and so I think it's like building the right support around you and figuring out like however you need to, to cope with it. But it, it is really hard, you know, from a very tangible perspective. The one thing I did is that I have this document um, that I managed called an objection tracker. And so whether it was fundraising or whether it was with customers, one thing that I was doing is I was consistently, you know, tracking the objections I was getting. Was it, what, what were the trends? Was it pricing? Was it, oh, we don't know that this will work? Was it you know, something else? Was it we don't have the right buy-in? And over time, I, I started to address those objections like earlier in the process and like more strongly. Uh, and then I would see those kind of like fizzle out, right? So I think part of it is like mindset and just, you know, I didn't take care of myself the best and I was just like sleeping consistently two hours a night and I thought it was okay. Um, and that's not great, but also, you know, from a tactical pers perspective, making sure that I was super clear about how I could improve and getting the right feedback and input to do so. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Hi. Um, I have hi. a correlation causation question. Um, have you found that companies that are already performing well or teams that are performing well have an easier time of the social engagement portion? That's a really good question. So we, now I can't name names. Um, so we have a company that everybody wants to work at. Um, and they have a pretty strong culture and their engagement is actually um, pretty high. 
we also have a company that laid off 10% of employees and people were just like F you to the management. We, they told us, you know? Um, and we deployed, we just did the SSO integration, right? And we tested it out. In three days, 25% of the company had on their own with no notice, no notification, they had adopted the software. And it, it took off on its own. And so we've seen it work well in environments where there is a lot of um, you know, strong engagement, positive culture, but we've also seen it in situations where the culture was pretty shit. And this was like a mechanism for employees to do things on their own. Because when the culture is bad, it's, not, it's usually the management's fault. And employees are usually distancing themselves from the managers. And so when we were able to actually kind of use this kind of grassroots tool that works very much like a social media tool in the workplace, people adopted it as a way to just kind of have their own place. This, I feel bad, this, this guy's been having his hand up for a while. Oh, don't feel bad about Sony Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing, yeah. Gareth. You can come up. No, no, no. John. Hey. You do it. So two things. One, we're a completely distributed team. So what you said about going to the branch offices resonates with me. Because trying to build any kind of culture around community or togetherness, I, I totally agree with you. I know the, the value of this because I've seen it. Do you have any advice on... What do you do if you have a distributed team? Or is there anything that you can do? Um, you know, we try to get together occasionally. That's probably the best thing that we have. And then two, I didn't see anything up there on Gen Xers, and I'm feeling kind of like the forgotten middle child. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you called me out. So um, I'll address the Gen Xer thing later in a second. But um, as far as distributed teams, that's really interesting because we've talked to companies like Envision and a ton of other companies who are like completely distributed. And you're right, it is harder because you don't have those opportunities to cultivate you know, online connections and bring them offline. And so the one thing that's, you know, that distributed teams do that, um, you know, there are two things. So one is that whole kind of, we call them squads on squad, but you know, your, your, your tennis squad or your running squad or whatever the case is, um, make sure that they're participating in kind of these groups of employee interests. Everyone wants to do diversity groups, like, you know, women and like, I, I'm, of, I'm of the, you know, thought that diversity groups are a little bit outdated. Um, but the second thing you can do with that is just various competitions and recognitions, even though they're distributed. So <clears throat> we do this with one of our customers where they're like this, these Fitbit challenges or there are these kind of tennis challenges, or like if you meditate, the meditation people, if you meditate five days in a row, then you get like a particular thing. And so kind of building community through some of the competitions and things like that, um, everyone can do competitions through, through online. Oh yeah, sorry, Gen Xers. So two of my siblings are Gen Xers. So um, it's really interesting. So Gen Xers, they're, they're this hybrid of, they're, they're like, they're kind of cool, like they're on like Twitter and some of them have some Snapchats. But then they're, they're like, oh my God, the millennials, you know, <laughs> I'm glad I'm away from them. But um, I think that Gen Xers, they're this, they're this interesting middle that I think skews a little bit more towards the boomers. So I still think that they, they are 
you know, focused on stability, they're focused on hard work, they're focused on paying their dues to make sure that they can kind of, you know, climb up. Um, the passion thing is a bit more secondary to Gen Xers, in my view, than, you know, it is to millennials where they're, they'll just quit their job and travel for three months and not have any cash. And so, yeah. Thank you. And our last question. Hi, thank you. Really in, enjoyed the talk. Um, one of the things that we've seen this week with the founding team departing uh, Facebook from uh, the Instagram founding team departing Facebook, uh, them saying, you know, we kind of understand that social media works, but we don't really understand how it works. And we've seen these big unintended consequences, these big negative aspects of, of social media, the providing space for, for really bad things to happen. Is that something that concerns you with the platform that you're building? And if it is, uh, what are you doing about it? Yeah, I think that's a really help, that's a really good question. And um, you know, to kind of just ex expand upon what you're saying, you know, social media also has negative mental health effects, um, where you know people don't they're they're looking to social media to feel validated. If I don't, I know people who if they don't get enough likes on their Instagram pictures, they take them down because they weren't validated enough, and that's just silly. Um, and so I'm more of, I'll, I'll put something up on Twitter. If I have no likes, that's fine. Like, you don't have to rock with me. That's cool. But I'm also, I know I'm in the minority in that regard. And so the one thing that we're doing, and how that has happened is that when you're building a high-growth tech company, Twitter went from like 250,000 users one year to like 1.2 million the next year to like, I mean, they were growing multiples, right? Um, they're, they're, what they're focused on, and they're, um, they're you know, in, what they're focused on is engagement, right? Whatever engagement looks like, right? And so I think that the one thing that we do that's a little bit differently is we actually kind of ask ourselves, what's the kind of human impact of what we're doing, even, in, even while we're growing? And I think that it's important to not lose sight of that. You know, for instance, at the Airbnb guys, not to make fun of like four white guys starting Airbnb, but if they had like stopped to ask like, are people gonna be okay with like Muslims or black people coming to their houses? Like they probably would have built a product that was a little different if they had stopped to ask themselves that question. And so I think that, you know, for us, it's, we're conscious of it. And I'm actually very mindful of making sure that I don't, you know, build a product that has kids out there, or people out there feeling like very invalidated. Um, it's just making sure that we, we embed that in our process and our investors are actually completely on board with it too. Don't forget, you can get updates of new episodes of the Boss Podcast and of talks and events coming up in the Business of Software calendar by subscribing to our newsletter. Visit businessofsoftware.org updates to sign up for free. Business of Software is not just about great podcasts and conferences. We also have a host of great online masterclasses with a wealth of world-leading experts all aimed at helping you do what you want to do better, better. For more information, visit businessofsoftware.org slash online dash masterclasses. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.